of happiness sitting here looking out at you all. It's really um, makes me happy to see this many people coming to a retreat like this with this uh, intention to cultivate wisdom and kindness. This is so rare in the world and it's a beautiful and powerful thing and it's worth acknowledging that as we go through these days, especially when the going gets a little rough, sometimes uh, it's just good to reflect on the wholesome, beautiful power of this intention. And I just want to say one thing. This is a preamble to the introduction to my talk. <laughs> that when we come on a retreat, you know, sometimes we forget, even if we've been, been to retreats before, and if, if this is one of our first retreats, or for some of you, your very first retreat, you know, even if we feel like we're the world's worst yogi, we are practicing hard and we're getting some concentration and continuity in our practice. And one of the things that happens with this is that we become more sensitive in all kinds of ways. And we're such a walking, we're just a walking sensitivity thing anyway. You know, all we are is this sensitive thing, body, being, going through the universe. And we have all these sense doors and they're constantly being impinged on by sights and sounds and all of the different feelings. And, and it's quiet here. And we don't have all of our usual distractions and things that can make us, uh, make us a little more numb at times. Or sometimes they protect us, but sometimes they, they keep us from intimacy with life. But we do get sensitive. And so if you notice that things are impacting you more than you're used to, it's because they are. And that's a normal part of what it's like to be on retreat. So just to bear that in mind as you go through the days, that if you feel really sensitive, that's okay. And it's part of the process. And sometimes it's hard to be with. One time someone asked the uh, Dalai Lama why he thought it was that so many people found him really irresistible. People were drawn to him. And this is what he said. He said, oh, I don't think I have especially good qualities. Oh, maybe some small things. I have a positive mind. Sometimes, of course, I get a little irritated, but in my heart, I never blame, never think bad things against anyone. I also try to consider others more. I believe that others are more important than me. Maybe people like me for my good heart. I think maybe that's true. <laughs> And sometimes we, that wasn't the funny part. <laughs> the funny part comes later. <laughs> I 
But sometimes we meet people like this in our lives, or we hear about them, or we read about them, we have some contact or connection with people like uh, the Dalai Lama, who seem to somehow exemplify or embody qualities of love and kindness and compassion. I had the good fortune to meet um, a Cambodian monk named uh, Mahagosananda, who lived in his, uh, in the last years of his life, he lived in a small monastery not far from here, over in Leverett, less than an hour from here. And he would sometimes stop by uh, here once in a while, but I also used to go visit him on occasion. And when he was quite elderly, he, he's, uh, his, a lot of his mental acuity started to go down. He, he had Alzheimer's disease. As a, when he got quite old, he lived it be into his 90s. But I would go to see him, and um, I remember one time I went in, and he had a small room, and I, I just went in to pay respects. And he started handing me presents, things from his shelves and little gifts. And he had this incredible smile on his face. And it was like being bathed in love and light to be around him. And this incredible... Um, field of metta there. And he was highly regarded. He was the Sangha Raja of Cambodia. He was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize on many occasions. There's a beautiful photograph at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Some of you might have seen. It's a picture of the Dalai Lama and Mahagosananda, each one bowing to the other. And each one is trying to get lower than the other one. And they're almost bent completely over trying to show the greater respect, the one to the other. Last night, Rebecca mentioned some of our teachers in, in the Sagaing Hills in upper, upper Burma. And the two monks, one of them in particular is someone who I, it's worth it to me to fly halfway around the world just to sit in the same room with him for a while. And when we're with people like this, they, they have this way of relating to us as though we're the most important people in the world at that moment. They're totally present for us. And it's not because of who we are. It's not that personal. It's simply because we are. Simply because we're living beings. So people like this point to this possibility that one could live from a place of unconditional love. And I think sometimes we think that we're born with a certain amount of kindness or love, compassion or care, and that's just the way it is, and that we'll always come up short and we measure ourselves against these great fine beings and we see, we feel like, well, we're just always gonna be lacking somehow. We couldn't come up to that level but qualities like this are not just something to admire in another person and another being. We can develop these wholesome, beautiful qualities in ourselves. Our hearts are malleable, our minds are not fixed, they're not static, and where we place our, our hearts really does matter. Otherwise, there'd be no point in coming to a retreat like this. And there's a simple line from the Dhammapada teachings of the Buddha in verse form. It says this, speaks to this so directly. He said, cultivate the good, 
refrain from that which is harmful and purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. And the quality of metta, of loving kindness, it reflects a simple generosity of heart that wishes well to oneself and to others. It's this mind and heart of friendliness, of benevolence. It seeks the well-being and happiness of beings and doesn't ask for anything in return. It's not seeking any self-benefit in that. It's this quality of heart that recognizes the universal wish that all beings have to be at ease, to live happily. The Dalai Lama in this quotation, he takes this wish to be happy a step further. He says, I believe that the very purpose of life is to be happy. From the very core of our being, we desire contentment. And in my own limited experience, I have found that the more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating a warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts our mind at ease. It helps remove whatever fears or insecurities we may have. And it gives us the strength to cope with any obstacles we may encounter. It is the principal source for success in life. And metta has this characteristic of softening our heart and mind, increasing its pliability, its spaciousness, putting it at ease. And it is this great source of strength in coping with the inevitable difficulties and challenges that come in our life. And when our mind and our heart are open and gentle and pliable, this serves as the ground for clarity in our seeing, as the ground for the arising of wisdom. Because when our minds and hearts are open in this way, pliable and gentle, they're less reactive. There's more patience, more ability to be with difficulties in our life. So it is a great source of strength and courage in this way. And the Buddha made this, made a couple of very visionary, really radical statements that I think provide an important context for what we're doing here with this practice. He said the mind, the heart, that means yours and mine, that our mind, the mind is inherently radiant. It's pure, it's luminous. This is its nature. And it's because of visiting forces that obscure this luminous clarity of mind. That's why we suffer from visiting forces. And these visiting energies are manifestations of what are called the three unwholesome roots these energies of greed, hatred, and delusion. And they manifest in, a, in many different ways and, and as aversion and ill will, as fear or doubt, as desire and dullness, all these different ways that greed, hatred, and delusion manifest and visit the mind, visit our hearts. And so they do come, but there's a positive side to this because they are just visitors, they're not inherently part of. They're not an intrinsic part of the mind and heart. They come when the conditions are there and when those conditions are not there, they don't 
They don't arise. They're not always there. They may come often, but they are just visitors. And the luminous nature of the mind is not affected ultimately by these visiting forces. They have the function to temporarily obscure the clarity of the mind, but they don't change it fundamentally. This is really good news for us. And we can think of it like the sky, you know, clouds and things obscure the clarity and the openness of the sky, but the sky isn't changed by that. And when they go away, its clarity is still there. Its openness is still there. But these, these visitors show up a lot of the time. Sometimes when we look, it seems like that's pretty much all we see in there. We were on a metta retreat, and when we look, all we see is the lack of metta. And our hearts aren't open, they're not playable, and we're struggling. And you know, a good sitting, well, maybe we get to boredom, and it's downhill from there. And you know, it, we feel a bit discouraged, perhaps. <laughs> we take it personally, as though it's our, our fault. And if we were any good as meditators, then these things wouldn't show up. And so part of what our practice involves is, is reconnecting, you could say rediscovering some of this luminous clarity that's there underneath these visiting forces and underneath the habits and patterns of reactivity, conditioned ways of reacting that diminish, that somehow will make us feel diminished, diminish what we think we're capable of. I'm going to read the first stanza of a poem that I know some of you have heard, but it points to this very beautifully. It's called St. Francis and the Sow by Galway Canal. He said this, the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. So in this regard, it's important to remind ourselves that this quality of metta, of loving kindness, isn't something that we're trying to create or that we somehow discover outside and get it and bring it in, manage to acquire it. And what we're doing here is we're highlighting and cultivating something that already exists within each of us. You could say we're uncovering this inner goodness that sometimes gets obscured. We're reteaching ourselves our loveliness. But we need to know what to do when these unpleasant, unwholesome mind states and energies do come because they're going to show up. It's not a sign of failure. It's a natural part of this practice of this process. So if we can bring clarity and kindness, compassion, wisdom to bear, then we're going to be a lot better off. So we need to learn how to relate to these difficulties from a place of strength and ease and 
find some skill in dealing with them and working with them. And we can actually find a way to relate to them where they can become a vehicle for our freedom. And this points to a second and maybe in a way the most visionary and, and most radical teaching of the Buddha. This is the heart of, of the teaching. He said, I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering, which is actually two things. <laughs> but, but it is one sentence. <laughs> but this teaching goes to the really the heart of what's possible. <laughs> Maybe you should have said, I, I have one sentence <laughs> with two things. Anyway, <laughs> you get the point. Um, so there's this acknowledgement that suffering does exist. You know, it's real. I'm not trying to deny that. It's a full acknowledgement of that. And it points to this possibility. He didn't just teach suffering. <laughs> <laughs> But there's this possibility for the end of suffering. <laughs> and laughter helps with that. <laughs> but this serves as a really beautiful framework for relating to our experience. Because we look at our experience not so much in terms of good and bad or right and wrong. In terms of what we like and we don't like or what we want and what we don't want. Which is a lot of the way we relate to our lives. But we look at it in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. It's like a kind of lens that we look at life through. We look at our experience in terms of what leads to greater unease, to suffering, and what leads to freedom. And if we look, we see that mindfulness, kindness, compassion go in the direction of the end of suffering. And ill will and greed and delusion lead to greater suffering. And so rather than seeing difficult energies as, as bad or wrong or as somehow a sign of weakness or failure, if we see them in terms of suffering in our lives, see them as impersonal energies, as impersonal mental factors that arise due to conditions, pass away due to conditions, this way of holding them, of relating to them allows for a real possibility for transformation and for freedom. So there's five ways that these, these three unwholesome roots manifest in our practice, in our lives. And Jesse mentioned these the other day, and uh, we've been talking about them in other contexts, but I wanna go into them tonight in a little bit more detail. So these are called the five hindrances the nivaranas in Pali is the Pali word for them. And these are difficult mental factors or experiences that have this function of clouding, obscuring 
sometimes enveloping the mind, obscuring its natural clarity. And they range from the very dramatic and the miserable to the slightly annoying and just a little bit unpleasant. But when they're present, they keep us disconnected from life. They, they function as an obstacle to intimacy with life, you could say. And when they're strong, when we're really under their influence, we're unable to see or understand our own good or see the good in others. So I'm gonna list, name them. The first one is desire for sense pleasures. It's the various forms of wanting in the mind. Second one is aversion or ill will. This way of the power of not wanting ways that we're in contention with our life, with experience. Third one is restlessness, or restlessness and worry. It points to agitation and excessive kinds of agitated energy. Sloth and torpor, dullness, sleepiness, this inability to connect, and skeptical doubt, which is a kind of uncertainty or an inability to decide. And in the text, there are five similes, uh, images, you could say, that illustrate how these hindrances function in terms of, of obscuring the clarity of the mind. And so the image that's used is, is as though one had a bowl of water and you were trying to use it as a mirror to reflect, reflect light as a mirror. And so the desire for sense pleasures is likened to a bowl of water into which different colors of dye might be poured. So it might be colored red or blue or yellow. And we couldn't see our reflection in this. And we get fascinated by the colors drawn into it in that way. And sensual desire colors our perception in the same kind of way. And with aversion or ill will, it's likened to a bowl of water that's placed on a fire and heated to a boil. And so it's seething and boiling. And there's no possibility to see a reflection in that surface. And you could say in, in terms of aversion, it's as though the mind is heated by the fire of, of this ill will and aversion. And sloth and torpor is likened to a bowl of water which is covered with algae and pond scum. <laughs> this thick matted growth we can't see because the surface is, is covered with this stuff. You can imagine like trying to swim in a, a lake covered with gook. We can't see, we can't move. And restlessness is likened to a bowl of water which has been whipped up and stirred by the wind and it's all choppy, so we can't see a reflection in that. And doubt is likened to a bowl of water that has mud stirred up into it, so it's clouded by muddiness. So in all of these similes, the natural clarity of the water is, is obscured by, but it's not changed by these different conditions, you know, dye or mud could settle out or be filtered out and you can skim the muck off the surface of the pond or remove the heat from the boiling bowl or the wind might become calm and then the water becomes still and mirror-like. 
So the key to working with these difficult energies is, is mindfulness, is presence of mind, awareness. And if we can recognize them and name them, we can gain a certain power of them, over them. And we can transform them from an obstacle to meditation into an object of meditation, which is a, a big change. It's a powerful transformation. So I want to go through them each individually, at least briefly, tonight. And, and the first two have been uh, already spoken of a bit last night uh, by Rebecca. I don't know if she named them this way, but they're called the near and far enemies of metta, of loving kindness. And these are two strongly conditioned forces that obscure or push aside the quality of love in our hearts and minds. So it's important to see how they work and how we get caught by them and understand ways that we might find some freedom when they are present. So the near enemy is something that looks like metta. And so it fools us because it masquerades as the real thing. And this is the force of desire or craving or wanting. And if we look at metta, it has this generosity. It's like an offering, a gift of love, of friendliness. The desire always has some aspect that's focused on getting something. There's always this wanting something that's there. It could be desire for anything. It could be wholesome things like desire for fulfillment or acceptance or recognition or even the desire for love. These are not unwholesome things to want. But the quality, it's the quality of the desire that's important in this. But this quality of wanting is really different from the feeling of, of giving an offering that comes with metta. You know, metta, pure metta doesn't ask for anything in return, but desire always contains the need for getting something. But it can be confusing because both metta, love, and desire, and with both of them, there's a, both of them, there's a movement towards another being or towards something. There's a feeling of being drawn to and there can be feelings of pleasure and delight in this and a feeling of being connected and drawn to another in both of these. But with metta, this movement towards shows up as a simple wish for the happiness and well-being of another. And with desire, there's always a flavor of wanting something back. It's like, I will love you if and all of the conditions that might be put on there. You know, if you love me back or if you do what I want or whatever it might be. And so in this case, because it's depending on conditions or people being a certain way, it can change to ill will easily if, if people don't do what we want them to do or if they change. But sometimes it can be more subtle and harder to spot, you know, in our practice, for example, in our metta, formal metta practice, you know, maybe we notice what we're doing a lot of the time is we're checking to see if it's working. You know, am I getting more loving or more concentrated? Are these feelings arising? And so then the focus is directed on what we're getting out of it. 
So it's important to remind ourselves that we practice metta in order to offer and express feelings of goodwill and friendliness and love, and not for anything we might get out of doing it. It's a little paradoxical because we're intentionally cultivating these things. But we do it for its own sake. We do it as an offering. And this is the only way that this cultivation can ever actually function or work. One way we can distinguish between love and desire, another way we can distinguish is, is that they, the mind states that follow on from them are very different. And if we examine desire, we'll see that it often leads to feelings of fear or disappointment or possessiveness or insecurity. And metta usually leads to feelings of happiness and well-being and contentment, to a sense of peace or fulfillment. There's also a boundless, limitless quality to metta that ultimately doesn't make distinctions between beings, ultimately, maybe not in the early stages. But ultimately, there's no distinction, and it is actually possible to have feelings of well-wishing for all beings. But desire is always limited in its scope, and it always chooses this one over that one, makes a distinction, and it does easily change to to ill will. But metta doesn't easily change to ill will precisely because of this boundless quality that doesn't depend on conditions or people being a particular way. So there's no conditions there. It flows from our inner being not from the conditions in the world. And there's a real empowering that comes from seeing this because we see that how we feel doesn't, ultimately doesn't depend on the outer conditions of the world. It's really up to us. It's our choice. How we feel is really our choice. So the far enemy is easier to see because it's basically the opposite of loving kindness. It doesn't resemble it at all. It could say hatred, ill will, aversion. And when it's present, our minds become stiff or more rigid. They're not pliable and soft. And it leads to feelings of separation and alienation. And it can manifest in a couple of ways. It can manifest in an outwardly strong, aggressive way, striking out anger in actions of body and speech and thoughts. This kind of ill will arises a lot of the time when we think of someone who has harmed us or maybe harmed someone that we care about. And we think about the situation and we become angry. And it could happen to things, it could happen in relation to things that that happened in the past or some event in the, in the present or, or even projections into the future. You know, we can find ourselves projecting some imagined harm that has not occurred in, in the future that might not have any basis in reality at all. I remember times I would, of these scenarios of someone harming some innocent being or person that I cared about and and I'd imagine these and get really angry and feel justified and self-righteous about it, forgetting that it was just a complete fabrication in the moment. 
and it feels strong and powerful, we get hooked by it because it feels justified and good. But it's just complete imagination projected in the future. And sometimes we take impersonal things personally and we get angry, ill will arises. I, I remember seeing some TV programs a few weeks ago when this volcano was blowing off in Iceland and the airports were closed and they were interviewing passengers and they were, some of them were quite angry as though this was some personal attack, you know, and, <laughs> and really indignant and, and you know, it was a volcano erupting. <laughs> and, and the airports had been closed for their safety. But, you know, their response was as though this was the volcano had attacked them personally, <laughs> was trying to make them wait or make them have a bad time. And at times, you know, this ill will aversion has an inward focus. You know, it's turned back on, on ourselves and there can be feelings of sorrow or grief or resentment that arises. The result is still very much the same. It causes the mind and the heart to contract, to become more stiff, leads to feelings of separation and isolation. There's a definition of loving kindness in the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification. This text has a lot of technical stuff. And one part of that definition says that the proximate cause for the arising of metta is seeing lovableness in beings and that its footing or its foundation is seeing with kindness. So these are important. This is important to bear in mind when we practice that the cause for metta to arise is seeing with kindness and seeing lovableness in ourselves and others. And you know, we're all a mixed package. There are things we like about ourselves and others and things we don't. But it can be really easy to focus on the things we don't like, things that maybe aren't so lovable. We get caught in judging and criticizing. And this has the effect of feeding this aversion, this ill will in our hearts. It conditions feelings of separation, of alienation. But when we practice metta, we make this conscious decision to focus on lovableness, on the good. And it doesn't mean that we pretend that, that we're perfect or that others are perfect. It's not, you know, putting a, just a, a pretty veneer on things. We're real about it, but we focus on the good. We find something good. It's a choice of where we put our attention. So the third of the hindrances is sloth and torpor, which are not words that most of us use on a daily basis. Uh, you don't go around saying, boy, I'm feeling slothful today, or you say to your friend that you notice they're having a lot of torpor this afternoon, perhaps. <laughs> I looked the words up in the dictionary for fun, and uh, actually the definitions are quite useful. Sloth is a disinclination to work or exert oneself, indolence or laziness. And torpor is a state of being dormant or inactive. Now this is the good part. 
temporary loss of all or part of the power of sensation or motion. <laughs> Sluggishness or stupor. And so this hindrance usually manifests as some kind of sleepiness. Although sometimes it's a lazy stubbornness, this indolent aspect. You know, it's too hard, I don't want to do it. That kind of mental attitude that comes. But when it's really strong, it does have this stupefying, stupefying, stupefying? Is that a word? <laughs> now there's a word for you. <laughs> it should be in the dictionary. <laughs> yes, the stupefying effect. I mean, I've had it sometimes where it's this, it is like this dormant stupor that, that, you know, it feels as though we couldn't open our eyes to save our life. And it's not because we're sleepy so much, it's just this sludge that fills our heart and mind. So there's three causes. Usually it's born of one of these three causes. Sometimes we really are tired and we need to rest. And especially when we first come to retreat in the early days, we can be really exhausted from our busy lives and we don't see it because of the momentum of, of the busyness. And then we show up here and we have this huge energetic shift when we arrive and we shift to the pace of life here and it really hits us and uh, sometimes we need to sleep extra. But this usually passes after a few days. Sometimes this, this kind of dullness is a resistance to something that's unpleasant or difficult in our experience, in our body or mind something we don't want to feel or don't have the energy to be with. And so we can zone out or, or go to sleep to avoid that. And sometimes it's an imbalance of energy and concentration. These are three ways that it can manifest. And sometimes it arises gradually and there can be a pleasant quality when it's first coming on, especially if it's born of of a little too much concentration and not enough energy. You know, we can feel a sense of tranquility and calm, and these are good, wholesome mental factors. And they're usually quite pleasant. But if our energy is low, this shades off into sleepiness, into dullness, and, you know, everything feels really groovy, and then we're nodding off. <laughs> and, uh, it's just this, the concentration is stronger, the calm, the tranquility is stronger than the energy at that time. And sometimes if we can catch it right at the beginning, when it first starts coming on, start, first starts to arise, and if we can bring some mindfulness attention to it right then, sometimes just that much mental energy can dispel it or shift it a bit. But often by the time we notice it, it's too far, uh, it's gone too far and we need some stronger measures. So I'll give you a few suggestions that might work. You can try just straightening the posture, sometimes that helps. Taking a few deeper breaths along with that. Opening the eyes and letting light in into the eyes. The perception of light, internally or externally, is said to dispel this dullness. And we can always stand up, we're not so likely to fall asleep, although it's not unheard of while we're standing up. It's less likely. And a 
A classic remedy is to pinch or pull the earlobes. I'll be curious to see if there's any earlobe pinching going on. Maybe during this talk right now could be a good idea for some of you. <laughs> and you know, when we leave the hall, you know, get some fresh air, splash some cold water on our face, or take a fast walk and raise some energy. And sometimes, last but not least, is graceful surrender. Sometimes that's the best approach. And sooner or later, we usually wake up. And it can be really interesting because sometimes we have, there's enough mindfulness to track it and, so, and that can change from one mind moment to the next, from this dull sleepiness to wakeful clarity. It's really interesting to see that shift, how that can happen. And I've had a lot of sloth and torpor in my practice. I may not be the king of sloth and torpor, but I am the prince or duke <laughs> of it. We seem to, uh, often we have a hindrance of choice. Um, well, choice maybe not, but our temperament inclines us to one or the other. This might change over time. But I've had a lot of it, and I, I used to, I hated it, especially in the early years, and I really struggled with it, battled against it thought that my duty was to vanquish it and overcome it. And at a certain point, I realized that mostly what I was doing was cultivating aversion by this strategy and that it really wasn't that useful and that it was more helpful to try to bring some interest to it. You know, we can, we can raise our energy a bit with hating something but it leaves us tight and constricted and ultimately it's not such a good plan. So sometimes one thing we can do if sleepiness is strong is just rather than having to tough it out for a whole sitting, just be mindful, just be present for this next moment. And then the one after that, we feel it coming on. Hmm. I gotta speed this up. So the fourth hindrance is restlessness. <laughs> which I see manifesting as we speak. And someone asked about it this morning, this feeling of, you know, we're gonna crawl out of our, out of our skin sometimes when it's strong, or we feel like we're gonna explode, or really we're gonna die if we don't get out of the hall. And there can be this seething quality of worry or agitation in the mind and this nervous, very unpleasant energy in the body with restlessness. Sometimes it comes from making too much effort, excessive striving, trying to make something happen can cause this agitation, this quality of restlessness. And so with, as with all of the other hindrances, the first strategy is to, is to be able to recognize it, to bring mindfulness, to recognize it, to name it with restlessness, maybe to actually note it as restlessness, use that word, really feel it in the body, remind ourselves that it's this impersonal phenomenon. And usually it's made up of more than one thing. Usually there's a component of thinking, worrying, mental agitation, and feelings of tension or tightness, excessive energy in the body. And if we can open it with some interest rather than fighting against it, and just see it as this strong, this excessive energy, 
that usually is more helpful than resisting it or struggling with it. That's more like pouring gasoline on a fire. If we start to struggle with it, it, it increases it usually. And so we can try to consciously relax the body. Maybe take some deeper breaths, scan through the body and try to let go of places that are holding. Or as I mentioned this morning, we can, it's a sense of making our mind, our heart as big as possible so that the restlessness has some space in there. We give it a wide pasture so that it doesn't comprise the entirety of our world. So the last one is doubt or skeptical doubt. And there's a certain kind of, one could say, doubt or skepticism that's actually highly prized in Buddhism. And there's a famous sutta, the Kalama Sutta, where the, the Kalamas asked the Buddha how they should tell which teacher, you know, all these different teachers were coming through and each one said, I have the right way, my teaching is the way to go. And they said, how do we know? And he said, you know, you, you take the practice, you put it into practice for yourself and you see, does it lead to, to goodness? Does it lead to freedom? Is it wholesome? You see for yourself, you don't believe anyone just because they talk a good line or they have a lot of followers or they're charismatic in some way. He said, don't believe me, don't believe anything. You, know, you put it into practice really fully and with honesty and see, does it bring benefit? Is it good? Is it worth doing? And this is different from the hindrance of doubt. That's more a kind of questioning where there's real interest to find out. But the hindrance of doubt has maybe a more cynical tone, you could say. It's not born of curiosity and interest. It's a quality of, of well, this just isn't worth doing. It writes things off without really checking them out very thoroughly. It can manifest in different ways. We can have doubt in our ability to do the practice, doubt in the kind of practice, this is wrong, this is the wrong, I should be doing Dzogchen. I'm actually more devotional, I should be singing bhajans. You know, or we have doubt in the teachers that's clear they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> And when, when, when it's strong, there's this quality of indecision. You know, our mind is entertaining these endless possibilities of, of what's really the thing we should be doing. But it can be one of the most difficult of these hindrances because it can come disguised as the voice of wisdom. You know, this really is the wrong practice for me. I came to the wrong retreat. It seems reasonable. It seems like you know, I'm really the deepest, I'm the voice of the deepest truth. It becomes really convincing and so we don't recognize it. So it's really important to name doubt. You know, even if we've been practicing for a long time, this can sneak in. So it seems really, really believable. So it's really important to recognize and to name it. This helps us not to believe it so much. And there's this, this image in, in the Buddhist teachings uh, for doubt and for the other hindrances too. They're, they're personified in the figure of Mara, the tempter, who loses his power when recognized. There are these, 
these different places in the suttas where the Buddha or someone else says, I see you, Mara. And so with doubt, I find this is a particularly useful image. You know, I see you, Mara, and we mentally wag our finger at Mara. And, and he runs off with his tail between his legs when we see him. And so this, for me, it brings a bit of lightness to use this personification. It lessens the grip that doubt can have on our mind at times. And sometimes what we get is a multiple hindrance attack, <laughs> which I don't know, I somehow think maybe Michelle coined that phrase. Is that, is that one of yours? It sounds like a Michelle phrase. And uh, to give credit where it's due. But sometimes it really just describes our experience, you know. Somehow we can be sleepy and restless at the same time. It seems hard to imagine, but it can be there. Or we can be beset by aversion and desire simultaneously, or once in a while they all show up at once. You know, this is Mara with his legions, his armies arriving. And sometimes we just have to laugh when this hits really hard. It's like, you know, it's so over the top, it couldn't get worse. And, you know, we're filled with hatred because we're so full of wanting, but we're too sleepy, restless, and doubtful to do anything about it. You know, something like that, where <laughs> it's just like, whoa, okay, <laughs> you know, let me have it. And, uh, <laughs> so when this happens, we, we really have to make the space of our mind big to hold this. And sometimes we, we've got to get out and take a walk and let, let the natural world in, see that there's more to life than, than just all of these negative, awful things. Let, let things drop the formal practice and, and let it all go for a while. And then start over when we have regra regained a bit of balance. So as I've been saying all evening, I'll say it one, once, one last time, the, the key to working with all of these is, is mindfulness and the ability to recognize them and, and to name them. Because without awareness, there's little or nothing that we can do. And it's really useful also to remind ourselves that these are visiting forces, because it's really easy to take them personally and to blame ourselves, blame the conditions. But if we can hold them as these impersonal visiting factors, these impermanent forces, then we can have a bit more balance with them. And the other thing that's really useful is to bring some compassion to our experience when they're really strong. You know, they're not bad or wrong and we're not bad or wrong or somehow to blame when, they're, when they come, but they're, even though we can tell ourselves that they're impermanent visiting forces, they are difficult and painful to be with at times. And so it's really useful to turn towards them with the qualities of compassion and care. So I'll end with a poem. I think I brought a collection here. I'm going to read one called The Guest House by Rumi, which may be familiar to you. Maybe I'll read more than one. 
I'll start with this one. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. I'll give you one more from Rumi. This is a stanza from a collection called The Turning. Dance when you're broken open. Dance if you've torn the bandage off. Dance in the middle of the fighting. Dance in your blood. Dance when you're perfectly free. So let's have a minute or two in silence and we can let these words drift off with the evening breeze and then I'll ring the bell. So I thank you for your kind earlobe pinching attention this evening. And uh, come back in about a half an hour for chanting if you're inclined. And we'll go through the whole uh, Metta Sutta tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.